So we're going to do something a little bit different this time. See, the next episode is episode 50, and I feel like that's a pretty big milestone, since most podcasts don't even make it past the, you know, number 20. So I thought, why not go back to my very first episode and redo that one? Just use the same notes, use the same transcript, same everything, but just do it again now, after everything I've learned and all the techniques that I've improved and my equipment that's changed. And I mean, that one was actually recorded in a walk-in closet with my head under a blanket. Now I'm in a you know fairly well-treated room and using, you know, pro-grade, if not, you know, not definitely, definitely not professional mics, but you know, pretty good. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I hope you enjoy. So here's episode one, secure and private is a process, not a destination, the Redux. I'm Dr. Ryan Strait, assistant professor at the University of Arizona, and this is The New Professor. my Gmail password, I don't use Internet Explorer, I use an ad blocker, everything else is a hassle. And to an extent, you are right. Attempts at security and privacy can go overboard and be a hassle, but with good intent. Still, after all, there is an upper limit on the kind of hassle that security policies place on users before said users simply stop using the app. I mean, if you had to manually type in a 20-character password every time you wanted to open your email account on your phone, would you even do it? So let's look at some best practices in security and privacy in general, but also some considerations specific to those of us in higher education, like the need to jump on a campus VPN when working remote. Now I'd like to preface this by saying that I'm not a security expert, and these are very general suggestions and observations that I've made, so much like starting a new workout or diet, consult your IT staff for any peculiarities particular to your institution. There is much, much more that you can do to protect yourself in the new digital landscape, but we're just going to focus on this. So privacy first. There's a pretty heavy overlap between internet security and privacy best practices because a breach of one can so often come from laxness in the other. Here's a good example. You know those security check questions that you see on websites like <coughs> banks? How about, you know, the name of your first pet or your mother's maiden name? For folks with a fairly open digital lifestyle, they aren't really all that secure. One nostalgic blog post or Instagram photo could reveal all that information to anyone willing to do just a teensy bit of digging. Instead of locking down your freedom to share these aspects of your life online, just think about untrue but memorable answers to those questions. Or better yet, make them actual passwords using a manager, which we'll talk about in you know, just a second. I mean, it's hard to be in this world and still have high levels of privacy, especially online faculty like me are inherently kind of semi-public figures and that we work with large numbers of people, we, we publish or otherwise disseminate work that we're doing and strive for attribution. And I mean, this podcast is proof of concept, basically. We like getting our names out there, and some faculty are truly public figures and household names. 
the more public that we are or want to be, the more we have to deal with, in some part, a loss of privacy. I mean, that's not, that's not controversial, I don't think. And I'm not suggesting that this is a loss of security, which we'll come to shortly. First things first, though. Use a virtual private network, or VPN. A VPN is used to obfuscate you and your data online, essentially. A good VPN will encrypt all the data going to and from your machine. It will hide your IP, that personally identifiable address that you have on the internet. It will keep no logs of your activity, and it will provide you with worldwide access at speed. Side note, it can also prevent you from using like Netflix because of their own anti-proxy policies, so you'd need to turn it off to watch Orange is the New Black or whatever. That's the hassle I mentioned. Two of the most popular commercial VPNs are Private Internet Access, which is often abbreviated as PIA, or NordVPN. Both good options you'll need to pay for, but they're you know, essentially the price of a cheap beer when you purchase them on a yearly basis. So granted, granted you can roll your own for free, but it's far from plug and play, and I guess I'll put directions for doing that in the show notes. While using these VPNs, it's possible that you won't be able to connect to your university's VPN, for those of you that have to log in off campus to see their student information system, for example. This can be a problem. A solution I found is to use the VPN at the router level, so your entire network routes through it. That way, on a device level, you can still log into the VPN of the school and get your work done if you need to. Of course, you might have to flash some custom firmware on your router, and even then your mileage may vary on that, so, you know, check with your IT folks. Here's one thing you might run into. You start using a VPN at home, and the fastest, closest exit node is, say, in a different state. Now, where you were logged into your email from your actual location, now, all of a sudden, you appear to be in a different state. And ding ding, there's a red flag at IT and you find yourself locked out of your account. And of course, this always happens right when you're about to submit grades or do something important. So I repeat, have a chat with your IT folks and see if you can get whitelisted for that particular flag if you're worried about it. On to social media. Some have argued for and against faculty using social media. It would be hard for someone in my field, you know, educational technology, informatics, applied computing, you name it, to be anti-social media, and I'm not. But there are some basic steps that you can take to protect yourself. If you're posting online, don't check in when you're out somewhere, and especially don't check in at your own residence. If you want to be totally skeeved out, take a look at pleaserobme.com, which has been turned off, as it were, and converted into a privacy checker, but just go take a look. Links in the show notes. You might even want to consider having separate personal and public accounts for services like Twitter and Instagram, if that's your thing. Facebook, at least you can just make a public page. But how about apps and services that protect your privacy? For calls, and we're getting into that overlap with security again, you, know, you could snag a Google Voice number and you know, put that on your documents, like your syllabuses, if you want. For messaging, pick something with end-to-end -end encryption. That means that only you and the person you're talking to can see what you're saying, unless somebody physically picks up your device or looks over your shoulder, but you just have to deal with that intrusion on your own. If you're serious about it, go with Signal from Open Whisper Systems. Even staffers at the Senate have been approved to use it now. Even better, combine that with a custom Google Voice number. If you're a bit more casual, but still want to reap the benefits of encryption, go with WhatsApp. And yes, Facebook bought it, but the encryption is still fine. Now let's say you want to step up your game a little bit, and not just encrypt your text messages and calls, but everything. And that brings us to PGP, a method of securely sending messages and files. If you know a little bit about this already, you're probably chuckling to yourself and you'd be right. There's really no super friendly way to use PGP that straddles the line between usability and security. The closest thing I know of is Keybase, and according to their website, 
helps you perform cryptographically secure operations with people you know on the internet. And yes, I'll also put a link to that in the show notes too. All this reminds me of that little flow chart that you may have seen bouncing around the interwebs a while back. It's a very simple guide to determining, is my information private? It had one fork in the question, did you put it on the internet? And if the answer was yes, then no, it wasn't private. If the answer is no, the answer was still humorously still not yes, but probably, and that's not wrong. As I said, there is overlap between security and privacy. For example, the reason you concern yourself with security is to maintain your privacy and safety. So here I just want to focus on the security in and of itself, while not necessarily what's being protected by that security. Using a password service can make that you have to change your password issue a little bit less annoying. There's no shortage of these like 1Password and LastPass, which you know have the double-edged sword of being accessible online, but if you want to crank up the security a little bit beyond that, you could go for something like KeyPass and then sync your vault, which is where you keep your passwords, between computers using some other method although you won't be able to necessarily access them on the web. According to Pew Research, a measly 12% of internet users in 2016 use a password manager, and two-thirds rely on memorizing their passwords. And while some have argued that physically writing down a password and keeping it at your desk is far more secure than having it online, I'd like to point out that it takes just one poorly aimed selfie to make that info public knowledge. So, just saying. Of course, pick good passwords. Any fan of XKCD will know the correct horse battery staple thing, and no, there's no way around it, you're just gonna have to get used to it. Another tip is to encrypt your hard drives. For Windows, there's the built-in BitLocker encryption, and if you're looking to encrypt something other than the full disk, you can skip TrueCrypt, as it's no longer viable, and try VeraCrypt. And again, all these links in the show notes. For Macs, and please correct me if there's a better alternative out there, there's FileVault 2. And please, pick a good antivirus package, although these days you're more likely to get hit with like your malware, like ransomware, than you are an old-fashioned virus like we think of it, so investing in active protection, like anti-malware bytes or something like that, is beneficial. Your university probably has one with a campus license that allows you to install it on all your machines, and if they do, great, go for it. If they don't, there are a number of free AVs out there, and I think Lifehacker does a fairly frequent roundup of these, and I'll stick a link to something in the show notes, but spoiler alert, Avira and Sophos for PC and Mac, respectively, not bad ideas. Also, again, anti-malware bytes, install that. Even the free version is good too. But please, whatever you do, especially if you're on a Windows machine, update your software and OS whenever it asks you to. A little bit of hassle now saves a lot of pain later, and anyone who is hit by ransomware will tell you this is true. Oh, and if you're wondering about encryption privacy and cloud storage, that's another show. So as I've said, university policies can throw a wrench in what would otherwise be fairly normal security measures, and likewise, to some, the policies they do enforce might seem overly ambitious or even downright draconian. Many universities have begun requiring, not just allowing, for two-factor or two-step authentication, and know that there is a difference between these two. Two-step is what most people think of when they actually hear these terms. It's like the one-time code that you get to log into Gmail after you've put in your password. Two- or multi-factor authentication requires two different types of authentication, like a password and then a physical key or some biometric data. Either way, enable it if it's an option. For most of us, it's not an option anymore. You have to. Likewise, the on-campus requirement for some systems can be problematic, as I mentioned, so it's worth noting that not all VPNs are created equal. The VPN that you sign into in order to access those systems, like the student system, the instructor system, whatever, 
While still called a VPN is not made with the same intent as those commercial or personal VPNs that you use at home for anonymity, encryption, and safety. The one at the university is made to cover their butts and, by extension, yours. If it feels like your university is lagging behind in some of these areas, it might be worth asking why. Then fire up that VPN that you're paying for. After all, you're likely to not just be dealing with your own data, but that of your students and your colleagues as well. So while all this might seem overwhelming, it really boils down to just a few changes in your digital muscle memory. It might hurt a little bit at first, but the hassle is nothing compared to the trouble you could find yourself in otherwise. For more information on security, privacy, digital civil liberties, and more, visit the Electronic Frontier Foundation at EFF.org. All right, so that was the very first episode that I ever did for the podcast, aside from that little kind of teaser trailer that I did as episode zero. So remember, some of the stuff that you heard in that is maybe a little outdated or maybe just not relevant anymore, um, but I wanted to do exactly what I had in my notes just so you can you know, compare them if you want. It's up to you. Next time is the 50th episode, like I said, and I think we're going to do an episode on milestones. Should be fun. So again, as always, thank you for listening to this little podcasty thing of mine. And also, again, happy 2020. If you found it entertaining, informative, or useful, please do subscribe and rate it on the podcatcher of your choice, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or however you listen. And as usual, I'd love to hear from you. So you can find me on Twitter at NewProfCast, while show notes, transcripts, and more can be found on the website at thenewprofessor.com. Until next time. Until next time.